Gee whiz, you've been following inflation lately? Try to buy some tomatoes at the supermarket, or fuel for that matter? You're trying to save for a deposit on a house and get emails from the real estate agents telling you about how things have gone up 23%? Well, something else that's gone up is the referral code for Cheesies. Now you'll get $10 towards your first investment simply by clicking on the link in the show notes where it says Cheesies Investing Made Easy. $10. That's money for free to help you beat inflation by investing in the market. Check it out. Links in the show notes. Cheesies Investing Made Easy. Julia Jones, take two. Uh, I drove all the way to your place there last week and uh, unpacked the microphones and then went, hmm, we need the mic- to plug the microphones into something. I left my bloody laptop at home. So it was quite good though because I'd met you twice um, at a rural business network and then Seed Waikato, heard you speak, but you know when there's 100 odd people in the room, it's tough to remember a face. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great to touch base and introduce myself to you. <laughs> Oh, I, oh, I feel terrible now if I had to meet you. I'm usually pretty good. <laughs> I usually, I must admit, you do look like a rural manager, so I probably thought you were a rural manager. <laughs> no, just a, just an optometrist with an interest in deer farming. So, yeah, no, it was um, also working in Te Aumudu, It's always handy to go along to things like the rural yeah. business network and hear what's going on. Um, yeah, what what do you sort of as a presenter get out of uh, you know presenting at something like that to a bunch of farmers? Testing the room. Oh, actually, yeah, no, you get heaps out. I mean, it depends what you're presenting at. If you present somewhere where there's other speakers, you kind of get a chance to hear them. But it's actually people's um, feedback. Like, they'll come up to you and say, look, you know, what we what you said about um, farming being X, Y, Z, it's not true. Um, you know, we do this. And so you actually, you, you get, it's really cool. It's like getting instant feedback on thinking and it doesn't necessarily mean that I change my view but it certainly gives my perspective more focus so I get heaps out of it because it's usually someone either there'll be a mix there'll be someone who says absolutely that was great you know like no I don't mean isn't that was great but you know hey what you said I can totally relate to and then the other side will be someone who inevitably says you have no idea what you're talking about that's terrible and you need to stop talking so it's it's you know you get all kind of bits of feedback and all facets of um and and that's that's the beauty of it that's actually the power yeah yeah so for um anyone out there that doesn't follow the dairy industry um who the heck's julia jones so and i don't just look at the dairy industry like i look at (laughs) I, I am pan sector. I guess I just um, pan sector. I like that. <laughs> pan sector. I know. I know. It's really funny because I actually get angry rants from all different types of farming. So I'll get like an angry rant from someone saying, you know, you, you're not focusing on the sheep and beef sector, and then I'll get some, and you're too dairy. You know, obviously your precious dairy cows, you don't want them to ever be impacted. And then I'll get a dairy farmer that will, you know, be really angry at me and send me a rant about you know you just you obviously only care about dry stock and sheep and beef farmers and it's to be fair no horticulture people have hassled me so (laughs) thank you horticulture but it's it's you know like it's so I um, am head of analytics for NZX I'm really passionate about the ag sector it's been part of my life since I you know I was born um and it's just um I guess for me every day I get up and I I really I want to inspire a new generation of food producer because 
the world's changing so significantly. And I don't necessarily mean, I suppose the word generation implies age, but I mean by, uh, I guess, mindset and mm-hmm. ability to evolve and adapt. You know, I I caught up with um, Ian Proudfoot the other day, who's one of my heroes. I love him. He's um, futurist at KPMG. And I literally said to him, as the world got faster or if I just got slower at processing? Because mm. it's almost hard to keep up with things. So so I guess for me, um, I guess what else am I? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I've, look, I've done currency trading. I've been um, in rural banking. I've been very fortunate. I worked at KPMG for six years. And I guess everything I've ever done has been a building block. Like everything has been... So when I worked in currency, I got to travel the country and talk to farmers about currency hedging. Well, it was speculating at the time. We used to call it hedging, but it was actually speculation. Um, and about, you know, offshore markets and how that might affect someone in Invercargill if something happens in Japan. And and so I guess it, I've always been really interested in learning about what's happening. And I, I love people. I love hearing about human stories and how they run their business and what makes them tick and it's just sort of, yeah, I just love being a sponge, a, sp- a giant information sponge. Love it. So so what was Day Dot? Where, where were you based and, and what was the farming outlook? Oh, so I actually grew up on the West Coast. So we didn't farm, but, you know, you, when you live in Ross on the West Coast, where there's, I think there's either 200 or 100 people in the town. I don't know what it is now. So I think it's, it's less, but um, it's kind of one road. And it was just, I don't know, it was cool. It's like you get to go and do really cool stuff. You're just... You're always out. You know, the whole thing is, is, as a kid, you're just out. I mean, it's we were lucky, right, because there wasn't PlayStations and all that stuff. I have great confidence if there was, I would have been sitting on one. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you're outside, you're playing in paddocks. I mean, I don't know. God, we used to walk up um, this bushwalk that had, like, cyanide trees on it, you know, like because they used to do the possuming because yeah. we had so many possums around. And you, when you think about, oh, I would have been six, when you think about your six-year-old, is out walking and and this is not like no reflection on my parents they weren't like bum parents or anything it's just that's what you did all of us kids would just you know you walk to the next friend's house you'd pick them up and um mum was always worried about us crossing the big main road but i oh, know we still did it it's just <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so i guess for me that that rural community that understanding that adventure like you adventure and you learn when you're mm. when you don't have any <laughs> sounds awful when you don't have boundaries obviously I have boundaries but when you actually physically don't have boundaries and you can go and explore you kind of get this incredible I don't know this exploration this this adventure this kind of learning you become a learning machine at like the age of six because all you want to do is go and do cool stuff Absolutely. And um, you sort of said something there with the currency hedging or speculating, depending on which way you looked at it back in the day of, you know, what does it mean in Japan for somebody in Invercargill? How did you start to spark that worldview? As you said, that, that small space in Ross, but it was a big space and it was adventurous. How did, how did you sort of start that mindset of the effects of the world on, on your little patch of dirt, I guess? Yeah, I don't know. It was really bizarre. I think it was, I think I was really lucky because mum and dad lost every property to mortgagee sale. So we <laughs> moved, yeah, so we moved around a bit. And so, and then that kind of gave me this context around, I guess, things changing and being out of your control. Um, and I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm some savant of a child. Like I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, 90% of the time, I probably just didn't know what was happening. But um, there's a lot of things in there. And like, I remember, you know, mum would never tell us and then you'd just be moving. And I remember once standing in the bank and I must have been like 11 
with mum and her just abusing the people in the bank because it had been another mortgagee sale, you know. And it was and look to be fair to, to the bank, um, you know, it was really tough for mum and dad. And they, uh, mum's passed away, but you know, they're cool people who loved us. This wasn't about not having love, but it was just bad decisions, bad, you know, no investment, no probably thinking of the future um, or thinking of the future in an interesting way. Um, and, 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 you know, just not having financial literacy. Mm, it's mm. funny. Not having financial literacy is literally handed down like an heirloom. You know, financial literacy is just, it's gold. If you've got it, grasp it and teach as many people as you can. And if you don't, work really hard to learn it. Yeah, that's the space I'm in at the moment, learning really hard. Um, I saw in your, your Twitter you managed to figure out how to share your Spotify uh, rap. Or, yeah, I, I did. Yeah, my, my uh, podcast Spotify rap was um, my own podcast, Joe Rogan's podcast, and then uh, three financial literacy podcasts, which I've uh, delved into over the last year, um, just went and actually opened the door to my house with, with the keys. And it's like... Um, yeah, the the financial literacy, you know, at the moment it's really hard to get into a property, but then once you've got the mortgage, you've got to service the mortgage. And, and of course, we're still dealing with low interest rates, so it's easier. But in your parents' time and early on in my parents' time, you know, 80% interest rate, yep. like, that's a big bloody thing to have over, over you when you're paying money and watching it go back up again. <laughs> oh, and there was the um, leaving money in, you know, that was quite common. So someone would leave money in, which is just doubling down, right? Like at the time, it seems like a great idea, but, you know, sure, you think you're going to be really wealthy in three years and have the money to pay back that. And, you know, at the time, it was probably only twenty or 30000 but it, that's a lot. And, mm. you know, when you're earning probably 15000 or whatever it would be. So, yeah, it's honestly that, that whole understanding that financial literacy, even understanding the principle of someone leaving money in, understanding the principle of the, you know, poor, poor mum and dad too, you know, they, a lot of finance, you know, like the GE finance and all those sorts of things. It's, you know, till, till mum died really, till her seventies, this is, you know, this isn't, this isn't something they grew out of or they, they learnt from. And I think, I think that, and I, and I don't want it to sound dramatic because it wasn't that I didn't have a terrible childhood. You know, there was some, certainly some difficult times, um, but difficult times are good because that's how you learn and grow. Um, and I probably wouldn't be as strong as I am slash hard ass um, <laughs> if I hadn't have gone through that. But I think that I was just really fortunate. Like I'd love to say that I had this wisdom to get it to follow a career. And I did have lots of goals. So at about 16, sorry, at about eight years old, I wanted to be the prime minister, uh, president of the United States of America. So I had that till I was about 17 and worked out I actually couldn't be because I wasn't born there. Yep. So it was a very ambitious, not very smart. Um <laughs> And wanted to be a CEO from the age of 40 and, you know, had all these goals. And I was very driven. I was a, um, you know, competitive swimmer. I'm only five foot, so that didn't clearly didn't go any further. Um, and, yeah, it's just, I guess I always had a hunger to learn. I just didn't understand what direction that would go in. And and once I started learning and getting into, like, a dealing room, I mean, they're, they're cool. You know, you get in in the morning. And this is back in the day before the, before the internet. But um, it was, you know, we had Reuters. We had... All those things that you have now, when you can Google information, that was freaking gold back in the day. Like that was literally like when you would walk in and you would have all this information before it came out in the newspaper. You know, you would have all this information that wasn't freely available and and, and you had about an hour and a half to read it, digest it, and phones would ring. And then you would be, you know, and that was it. So it was a really 
I, I just, yeah, I just loved it. So I think probably the whole thing with mum and dad and, and, and then moving into the dealing room, which again was a complete accident, by the way, how I got in there. Um, it was just, yeah, I think all those things that kind of built up, I, I'd say it was serendipitous as opposed to beautifully designed. So what was the accident? Oh, I actually, I, I was in accounts payable. And if, you know, if you really knew me, my sense of detail was horrific, at, to say the least. And um, with some things, it's it's insanely good. And things like accounts and admin and things, because I just have so much respect for people who are great with those things, because I think it's an absolute undervalued talent mm-hmm. that I do not hold. And <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, they were very kind to me in, in, in accounts payable. And I worked at UDC and they were restructuring and moving everything to Auckland. And I lived in Wellington. And um, they said, hey, look, we're getting letting everyone go and talk to the CFO. He's going to talk through the restructure. And if you want to tell him, you know, he's going to help with careers. And they're really good. Like, I didn't even understand what it meant. I was all of 20, I think. I mean, it's, I didn't, you know, if, if I had it got made redundant, I, I wouldn't have known the better anyway. So, um, and I said to the CFO, I want to be a CEO. That's basically my goal. And he must have thought, geez, she's a bit mental. But um, I chatted with him and I told him the things that I like to do and the direction I wanted to go in and, um he said oh I know the perfect place for you and he said and I got an interview with the back office of the dealing room was that so still admin... part of UDC or no it was ANZ sorry ANZ okay, owned yeah. them at the time yeah, yeah so um and then the the lady who had the back office liked me and she employed me and then within a couple of months I it's quite funny I had an argument with one of the dealers in the dealing room <laughs> and I had a complaint made about me, which was in the same day was withdrawn and then I was offered a job. So it was quite a bizarre, <laughs> you know, like it was, because it was more about attitude. It wasn't really about, um, oh, it was, I mean, I'm, I'm not super dumb or anything, but it wasn't majorly about acumen. It was about an ability to be agile and think quick and actually learn. And um, and I was so keen. And when I got that opportunity, and I didn't, I didn't even know what a dealing room was at first. And so I was just super super lucky that and I think when I think back this wonderful CFO I suspect he probably thought you're a quiet mental I know the perfect environment for you <laughs> whereas I thought he probably thought well she's awesome I know the perfect environment for you so I kind of have this amazing ability in my life to look at through rainbows mm-hmm. I can see the bad when I look back but at the time I often just see like this this kind of fantasy and um yeah and so it was just incredible so I was just so lucky and I'm, I'm very grateful I, I never forget that you know I never ever forget that um because I'm not the world's most educated person so it's not going to be they're not no one's coming and hunting me down for my intellect and so to have been given that opportunity and it was just cool it was an opportunity of a lifetime to be honest wasn't something sustainable long term um just because of the demand of it and the, the stress of it <laughs> oh yeah I think so and I think Oh, kind of like it was just fun like you you just did everything to the nth degree you played hard you worked hard you you know like I would get up at five and run to work and then I would start work at 6 30 or 6 whatever whatever run I decided to do and then I would go out for a run at lunchtime and then I would go out and not, you know I might be boozing or something not that I'm endorsing that and saying that's the right thing to do but I may be out entertaining until um, <laughs> the wee hours of the morning and then that would just start again and it was just yeah but it was cool like I don't you know it was just the there was a moment I had when I looked at the guys in the dealing room when I because I, I went to ANZ then went ASB and then went back to ANZ 
and I went back to the place where I'd started and there were a bunch of guys sitting next to each other who I'd been gone for five and a half years. They were sitting in the same seats and they were complaining about the same thing. <laughs> and I just knew I had to get out. I was like, because you're just going to end up, you know, like you'll, and to be honest, the whole environment changed anyway. I think the key I learned from that actually was although I thought my heart would stop the day I, I moved out from the dealing room to another job, uh, I realized that it actually changed. It, even if I had stayed there, it would never have been, it wasn't, things don't stay static. They keep moving and changing. So if you don't change, you will just have everything change around you anyway. Mm. So the, the morning when you're sitting there reading and taking on as much information, um, how does that compare and contrast to the evening where you go out and socialise and network? Well, there's one funny thing they talk about in a dealing room. It's called the third ear. Okay. And you can um, – so I can actually sit in a restaurant and hear a table three people away and hear their full conversation while I'm having a conversation. <laughs> so the whole thing with the dealing room is – and it, it, it changed, you know, this is this is years ago. But it used to be that I might be buying, someone over there might be selling. If you can net them out, then you should be able to – like it's – there's no privacy in a dealing room. It's like the ultimate open plan. It's, it's open plan today, but back in the day, you didn't have open plan like. And we were just on long desks. You pretty much knew when everyone was having a fight with a partner or not because you just did everything in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, you know, hardcore. So I guess, um, yeah, the contrast was, I guess, not that much contrast. I guess either way you're learning stuff, either way you're kind of talking or having fun. I guess it was more the, I guess, the, I wouldn't say the reward, but more the blowout at the end mm. of the day. Mm-hmm. So you say the, the fight with the partner, is that to get approval to make this, the exchange? What's going on there? No, no, no. I mean, as in, as in, in the dealing room, like if anyone's husband, wife or whatever, I mean, what well, was mostly wives because they weren't oh, right. women. But, um, you, <laughs> you just knew partners. exactly what was happening. You knew if they were picking up a bottle of milk on the way home You because you just sit really close to each other. So you just... You know, and it's just this kind of, I don't know, I, I don't think I've ever been able to, and I, and I don't, I mean, I love, I've loved all my jobs and I'm really, really lucky, but I, there's never, I don't think I've ever had that feeling of connection and, and just, it's like being part of a extremely dysfunctional family. That's yeah. just a heap of fun. I love that. It, was, it wasn't so granular as the actual job, but the uh, the day-to-day life life of all the people you're yeah. around. <laughs> and it was just smart people. I mean, geez, I remember one day, just things that people would think about was I think there was a new car out by Audi or something. We would yeah. have spent like three hours reading about the specs and, you know, like literally researching into what that might mean and the speeds it might have and other cars. And I think another day we researched for it. This is pretty bad, actually. Sorry, all the banks that I work for. Um, and then another day we spent two hours researching what the difference between a Panther and a Jaguar was. You know, like it's just because you're so into information, you just mm-hmm. literally, it really doesn't matter what the subject is. Yeah. You just can go just get and obsessed with it and become like, it's just awesome. So like the the sort of research side, the rabbit hole side of things, like um, – did where, where does it where did it come to fruition or, or were there a lot of dead ends? <laughs> um, you know, I think you learned that nothing was really a dead end. Yeah. Because it's there was different stages in, in within the dealing room around um 
one, you were meant to sort of try and look at new products. So we used to come up with new, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it sound way cooler than it was. I did a lot of the option books. So there was structured options, but I mean, we had really cool tools and we had support out of Australia and stuff. So it wasn't like I, I'm, again, I'm not a savant. I just really loved all the really weird different stuff. So it was our roles to actually sit there and just almost try and experiment, not with mm. clients, but with what sort of products might work. How would we make this product work for someone? What do we need to do um, and really, really work through it? So I, we kind of got taught. It was the weirdest, I guess, in reality, you get taught to fail fast mm-hmm. and keep going. And I think that's that's actually a powerful tool I wish everyone could learn in New Zealand because it worries me that, you know, and we've seen it recently in the media, that we beat people up who try things and fail and then we beat people up who try things and succeed. Um, and I think I think that research and that rabbit hole thing, yeah, you never kind of, and it was busy and it was dynamic, the environment, and it's probably, I'm probably in more danger of it now without the dynamics at times or the speed and the pace um, of the job as such um, going down rabbit holes. But I don't know, there's no such thing as a dead end because even if you research something and you find there's a dead end, you've you found an outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's still, that's still insight. So yeah, that's your role now. But um, with that that job, and you know, you said about Ian being the futurist. Like, was that your sort of building block for that role? Like, did did you feel prepared, or did he blow you away? <laughs> oh no, he blew me away. Like, it was like doing an MBA every day. It was. Um, so I think what the dealing room did was taught me how to absorb information and understand that information moves all the time, and you understand cycles, and you understand you know, crises, like literally, I think my whole world is literally built up with, you know, I entered the, the currency markets during the Asian crisis, you know, I went into rural banking during the GFC, you know, I, I seem to have some, so there seems to be some sort of pandemic or something or mm-hmm. crises that happens whenever I hit something. Um, oh, I, September 11, I was tra- I was in the, in the dealing room then. So um, all of these things, but yeah, so I think the dealing room probably taught me how to think and critically analyze it taught me how to digest lots of different bits of different information it taught me how to present because i literally spent most of my time going around the country talking to people or on the phone talking to people build relationships by the time i'd got to ian i guess what had happened is my world i wouldn't say it was smaller i just kind of didn't um I didn't realize how big and insane the world had been. So I was probably very good at analyzing information today as it changed. Mm -hmm. What I hadn't thought about was how do you look out 10 years and imagine Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, to hear him speak for the, even the first year I worked for him, I used to sit on the phone and, you know, we'd be talking on the phone and I'd be Googling because I was like, I don't know what he just said. (laughs) Um, And I just learned so much, but it was, it was the way he, the way he would think and the way he would look at things, um, and that's, he taught me how to think. He didn't teach me things. He taught me how to think differently, which is far more powerful than teaching me a thing. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's interesting how you said, like, the opportunity today and you said about the crisis. Like, does that, you know, when you're working with money and currency and, you know, maybe the thing that makes the world go around and something disastrous happens and the world kind of stops, how is it kind of that... Um, reaction time that speeds up like so what do i do about it or or where do i go 
Yeah, so September 11, I mean, to be fair, I only just entered the dealing room and the Asian crisis happened, so I had no idea what was happening. I just noticed a lot of people around me quite stressed and I just did exactly what I was told as quick as I could and the best way I could just to stay out of their way. But um, the the September 11 was quite different. So I was going for a run in the morning and uh, mm. I had a Walkman. I used to have a Walkman. <laughs> and um, it had the, I had the radio on it and, um, and I remember running with the Walkman and I remember the... Um, saying what had happened and I was like should I better get back to the dealing room so I shot back down the hill this is in Auckland shot back down um Frankton Road shot back into the dealing room and and literally the dealing room I think oh, it was I wouldn't say it was packed but there were five or six people in already and this would maybe it was 5 30 or 6 mm. at the latest um and then our treasurer who was amazing walked in and he just went and got everyone coffees and came back and I think the day was quite because we didn't know if we could clear positions. Mm-hmm. So, so it was it was even just pricing something on that day. So you'd have people ringing up, and it's a funny emotional thing. Well, one in a dealing room, you have big TVs everywhere. So of course, all you're seeing is the towers coming down all day. That was great. That was this bang back, you know, on the screen because of course we had CNN on, and that's all they showed all day. Um, we had people ringing wanting to understand about their positions. We had orders done. There's orders that executed because the market had moved. We didn't know if we could clear things. So when people were doing, were ringing in, as simple as someone in a branch trying to exchange cash, the branch are trying to get a rate, but we didn't. How do you price these things? You know, how do you price something when you just don't know? Because nobody actually knew for, it wouldn't have been 24 hours. I don't think it was that long. I think some certainty started coming back by the end of the, well, not certainty, but some knowledge. But for at least probably 10 hours, there was this whole thing of we can't. And then there were people ringing up trying to like do trades to see if they could like take advantage of it. And then that breaches your values. And I remember actually having this conversation with a guy saying he was talking about, you know, the opportunity in it and how much money he could make with the currency and what a great time to be trading um, for, you know, personally trading. And and I don't know, I took offense to it. I was like, mate, you know, these whole lot of people have died. Like, mm. I don't think this is a... So you were kind of torn in that moment of, but, you know, again, you have your own clients and then you're making sure that your clients are actually looked after and they understand what's happening. So it was at the time, it it sounds awful in a way, but it's probably what you kind of train for. Mm. Like it's, you know, the great thing about that environment is when things are on, they're on and you just go. Mm. And when things are off, they're off and you just sit, you know, like you just find something else to do. It's just... Um, it was a very, but that crisis, I could pretty much that through that whole day, I remember the calls. I remember the, you know, the, 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 the big traders, the, the proper traders, they were telling us, you know, what we could price at, how to do it, what needed to be done, where we needed to be careful, what was happening. Um, so it was just moving constantly. I think it took about three days until we fully understood how to clear positions and things. Hmm. Um, this shows my sort of uneducated nature. You t- we're talking about financial literacy there before. Like it was called the World Trade Centre, but what did that mean? <laughs> oh, look, I, it was a really weird one. It's I, Ironically, I'd actually been there a month before. I'd actually been up on the towers. Um, and because I'd only just started with this, I'd been on gardening leave from one bank to another. It's a good thing. You get a month off for free. But um, they don't, I don't think they do that anymore. And... Um, yeah, so the World Trade Towers were basically twin towers and they had a lot of the main trading centres there. Right. So they had the we, – we later heard that it probably wasn't – oh, and I think some of the actual operating systems were there, like actually some of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that, the idea of taking that out is you take out the financial systems. 
but um, there was a there were many backups in Greenwich Village and in all sorts of different places. So it was it was never going to be a hundred percent thing. But it was it was the financial district basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was it was traders, it was stock market, stock brokers, it was everything there. Yeah. So now with with the sort of you know you're hearing murmurs of of digital currency from world bank sectors and and everyone's going crazy over you know, back back to that uh, that speculation where cryptocurrencies from a personal perspective what's what's that sort of meeting for nzx for dairy like is it gonna be something like are we gonna have nfts for a dairy farm <laughs> it's such a good question because it's actually been a question i've been asking a lot of people at the moment so um, i'm very fortunate i get to talk to different people and i uh spoke to the chief economist of NASDAQ this week and, you know, asked him that question. I've been talking to broker analysts and saying, what's happening with crypto? You know, is this is this going to take over? That From what I can work out at the moment, so there's a couple of things. One, the digital currency type of side of thing is more likely to impact, say, a country, and, you know, I don't have any evidence around this, but the behaviours tell me this, um, that, say, a China is more mm-hmm. likely. If you have a digital currency, then you can easily shut someone out. You know, that's a that's a power play. Mm-hmm. So and that side of it, with the crypto and investment, I think it's probably going to end up being somebody's other investment. You know, it'll be like, you know, um, it's just, um, the NFTs are really interesting. I mean, I had to sit, I had to get someone in my team who's 20, 25 to explain it to me the other day. And I was like, so what you're saying is you're basically taking out a magical position on a nothing. <laughs> You know, like it didn't make, and he's like, oh, well, it could be a piece of art or something. And I was like, that hasn't been made yet. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's too much for this little brain. But yeah, so I think, I don't think crypto is going away, Um, but it was really interesting talking to the NASDAQ guy where he talked about it. Um, The problem we've got is if government, if we start talking about it and we start trying to um, legislate it or regulate it, Mm then it legit legitimizes it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the less it's actually regulated, the less it's legitimized. So the weird thing is, is by regulating it, you probably attract people to it that sh- maybe don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Whereas by not being regulated and not being legitimized, the people, I'm sure there are some people who just think they're going to make heaps of millions or whatever off it, but there are other people who are shifting to it um, because they want to be in a non-regulated environment. Mm. So you might, you know, the risk of regulating that and bringing it into the mainstream is that you start to shift, you actually make it more risky. Yeah, yeah. Because you've kind of got a, a almost this, this, I don't know, this um, polarising market of people who want the regulated want it because it's high returns and then the other people. And um, one of the barriers is, I mean, how do you even get it? You know, it's not like you can bring your broker or jump on shares and do a crypto. It's um, So it's kind of a, yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I think I never underestimate those things. Like it's not going away and it will evolve. You know, it will evolve. You've got NFT. Um, someone explained something the other day, but I can't remember the name of it. It's another similar one. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't foresee it in the near future taking over shares, um, or equities or, or housing, you know, I don't think someone who can't buy a house in Auckland, but has a big deposit is going to, well, I'd hope they wouldn't go hard in crypto with it. Um, it's, um, but yeah, it's, it's cool. I, I, I definitely will keep watching it. I'll be, 
I don't foresee myself ever using it personally. But hey, I mean, when I was in Singapore a couple of years ago, um, you know, crypto, there was a couple of restaurants that had cryptocurrency accepted as payment. It's, uh, I think there was one in China too when I was over there. So mm. it was a really, you know. Yeah, it was. And I think we changed things. I mean, if it was only the only way I could buy something that I wanted, of course I'm going to get into crypto. Hmm. Yeah, my sort of uh, link to that was, you know, you, you brought up something that I hadn't really thought of that, hey, if we attack the World Trade Center, then the whole international currency, you know, US-backed goes down. Yep. But actually, no, it was okay. And, you know, one of the arguments of cryptocurrencies and blockchain is this distributed network which of course is vulnerable if the internet goes down or computers go down like solar flares or something like that but yeah it's you know you've all of a sudden taken away and um, one of the arguments that you hear about a positive for this this currency and it's kind of oh well that's that's a fascinating consideration that you didn't think about you know that actually the, the you know took took a few days in the early ages of the internet to recover but you know, like would you say ten hours later things began to move and pricing continued? Yeah, and it's and when you think of crypto too, you know, like I know the cloud sounds great, but there's somewhere <laughs> there's a big computer that's holding the stuff that you'd magically think is in your cloud, and so China shifted out a whole lot of crypto um, mining machines or whatever processing. Guys, I'm sounding like I'm ninety now, um, but they moved them out because of the energy crisis. It was using too much energy, so. You know, and it's you, you can your mind can get a bit, you know, the point you raised around if the internet goes down and then you've got nothing, you know, you, you can you can end up in your head getting into a bit of a um, crazy space and imagining at some point you're going to be trading with shells again. But it's you know, I think it's just there's, there's always going to be a solution. We're very 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 resourceful as a as a as a species, but. Yeah, that that whole crypto thing, you were so right. Like the risks around that and and around the operating systems that are needed to do the mining, to do the, it's just uh, mind-boggling. Yeah, and and crypto, uh, what what they call maximalists, they've got an answer for everything. So they'll they'll say about, you know, they'll bring up the fact that I'm trying to ban mining, but hey, the crypto, Bitcoin's still there, it's still going well. And you're like, okay, (laughs) I'm hearing you and I'm also not hearing (laughs) you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have had three or four people on LinkedIn come to me and say that that it's a sure thing, mm-hmm. that if I wanted to make some money, they would help me. And I'm just like, that's right up there with the LinkedIn person that you get that says you've got a nice smile and, you know, and wants your bank account details. It's yeah. it's just, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I don't know. With anything, there's always rats and there's probably good things. But, I mean, you know, I think it was Elon Musk the other day, you know, tells everyone he's going to go big and go hard in, in crypto. And then what does he do? He gets out of it when when everyone else dived in because he dived in it's, you know. Mm. Yeah, no, the old Doge, Doge coin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, um, you, you brought up rats and, and, you know, people in the markets. How often do you, do you see it come about? Like, it must, must be unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I was really lucky, to be honest. I mean, you heard about it. And I think by the time I'd got in there, so... I started in 96 and then there was the, um, shit, who was it? There was a guy, 
the the is it Bearings Bank or whatever the um oh not Bearings it was one of the UK banks that basically went under. One of their guys was doing dodgy options and I think in the Philippines or something like that. And they were someone was obviously something weird was going on. So all of a sudden more regulation come in, on board. And then there was the NAB. Um, the options guys started writing some pretty dodgy options, and then they realised there weren't enough controls and there weren't enough checks. And and to you know in a dealing room itself, there's a lot of double checks. You know you would have to have if you really I mean. I'm not really wired this way, um, but if someone was trying to be dodgy, they would have to have a lot of people on board because it goes through lots of hands and there's lots of checks. Um, but those checks, so I didn't. I seen probably some interesting customers that I think were probably a little bit uh, had an interesting way of looking at the world and interesting. Um, you know, they loved they loved to speculate until they lost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they would be quite nasty. So yeah, I didn't see super dodgy. Oh, actually, no, there was one. There was one, there was a guy that I used to, it was a company, I won't say who it is, but, um, <laughs> and he was the treasurer and I used to ask him lots of questions or he might've been the MD or something. And he used to get really angry at me and I was like only young. And so I thought oh, it was me. I thought my questions I asked were bad. I mean, I'd be asking things like for signatories, like, mm-hmm. which is, which was, you know, bank policy. Um, and then about three years later, he'd been committing fraud. So these checks that he'd been ordering and doing was actually not for anything. And he was embezzling a heap of money. And luckily we had followed, and for me, I was like, oh my God, please, please let me have followed. But we did, we'd followed all process. So we, you know, we got the two signatories, the signatures matched up. It was, it was pure fraud at his, you know, and people will do, if people want to do something, they'll do it. You know, they'll get around it. Yeah. No, it's, but um... you've got to always follow the policy. That, well, that was a good lesson for me. Like mm. follow the policy. Cause it, you know, hey, cool. If nothing ever happens. And, and, and I almost caved a lot with him because he was quite an angry person. He used to yell at me all the time. But you get used to being yelled at all the time. You just kind of, you just roll with it. I'm quite good. I handle being yelled at quite well. And he, but he, it would almost make you think that you would, he would make you feel guilty. Mm-hmm. It would make you feel like you were being a bad, bad person at your job. And of course he did because you were basically going to find him out. So, yeah. So don't ever listen to people when they make you feel bad about following the process that's in place. Yeah. So on on the process and, and the financial literacy and creating something for you, we, we talked offline about the journey of wealth creation. Um, like how do you how do you sort of see it? It's it's just a generally low and low and slow process, right? And it's hard, and you get sucked into things like you know my own story, which I've, I've never really never told anyone. This is you know at thirty I had or it might have been twenty nine I had like thirty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt. And I had nothing to show for it. I mean, I had a very good wardrobe, but (laughs) I had, you know, and I'd been around the world. Um, But, you know, like, shoot, if, if I didn't, and that, that was a big hole to dig my way out of. It was scary. You know, like I was, I was on good money and I was unable to, you know, there were, my card was declining. It was really, I was shifting money from this place to this place. I used to have different bank accounts so I could put money over there. So when I, when my overdraft got, you know, like it was really, really bad. I was always paying the minimum. It was just, it just got bigger and it got worse and it just got, it just got out of control. And it was just, and I, and you know, when I look back, I think, God, it was just, and I did, I was really, I they did a hundred percent finance. So I first, I got myself out of the hole and that was purely through help I was lucky I worked for a bank and I was just I was I was drowning basically in my own debt and everything and it was my own stupid fault like nobody made me do it I just felt the need to try and 
be cool and keep up with what everyone else was doing. And I had just zero financial literacy. I just had none. And um, and I was lucky that my boss at the time, or the big boss, um, signed off a loan that would pay everything off with the bank. That And then it went on to one payment. And um, and I had a couple of good years with the bank that helped me. And I think I paid it off within, I may have paid it off within 18 months. Or maybe I was 28 when it mm-hmm. happened. And then when I was 30, I was able to buy a house. But that was on 100% finance. That wasn't, you know, I didn't save a deposit. Again, I, you know, and these were, this was hard and I didn't understand. And maybe I did understand and I just didn't listen. But mm. shit, it's, you know, when you're in that hole, it's so frightening. It's so, so frightening. So so getting back to zero, I've, I've been back to zero twice now. <laughs> but, um, one was, you know, being a university student and living off $2,000 of overdraft. And, you know, you look back at that and go, why the heck did I go $2,000 deep to sit at $2,000 deep? I, I kept going up and down from $2,000 deep. Why did I not just stop at zero and keep going up and down from zero? So you got back to zero. That was nice. Had a, had a few good years and then went to $10,000 on a credit card and it's like, you know, it was kind of like a tipping point. I don't, know, I don't know where it was, but it kind of went from being manageable to, holy cow, what's happening? And, yeah. again, and again, that needed help and back to zero and there was a, you know, good, good couple of years of being in zero going, when the hell do we get away from zero? And now I'm away from zero and it's kind of like, right, how do we how do we change our ideas to move forward? And um, one of the literacy things was, you know, um, revisualizing yourself further forward and that actually you operate within the system of that's, you know, say $10,000 $10, is over there and I operate here, you know. Like what 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 was some sort of mindset shifts for you to start thinking <sighs> not in terms of negative and then not in terms of zero but moving forward? Look, I, I just didn't want to be my mum and dad, you know. Like I didn't want to be, I didn't want to live in that place of constant angst and you know to, like I said before till 70 till mum died she was in this financial angst constantly and I just didn't think it was a way to be I'd um you know the the person who signed off that loan for me you know I he I remember really him really clearly saying to me don't let me down on this and I was never going to let him down you know it was just um don't get me wrong I'm not like I'm not great with my financial literacy now I try really hard and I have to constantly work at it Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's kind of like a, um, I guess a blind spot for me in a way, I guess. Um, but yeah, so, so, so not let, wanting to let people down. I'm probably wanting to achieve things. And I, so I'm a real goal oriented person. So I'd set a lot of goals around mm. my career and, and also part of it was pride. But to mm. be honest, I think the pride got me in that position at the same time. So that was a bit of a strength and a weakness. So my pride factor was I wanted to be proud about what I, what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And be able, um, but the other side of it was my pride was I wanted to have the cool clothes like everyone else and go on the big holidays. I couldn't afford them, mm-hmm. but I, you know, like it was just ridiculous. It was just, you know, and when I look back, and I know you shouldn't look back because it's it's pointless, right? It's you know you can't steer a ship while looking at the rudder. But I look back and I think, you know, the bank used to help you buy a house. You know, if I had have actually put that money into just buying a house, I'd be gazillionaire. Now it's. It's, it's those things that, you know, and at the time I thought, I don't want a $100,000 mortgage or a $150,000 mortgage. Oh, yeah, that'd be terrible. I'd love one now. It's, um you know, that, that amount. But it was just, yeah, I think definitely pride got me there, but I think pride was part of getting me out as well. Mm. You, brought, you brought up something there about, like, having some accountability. And for me, I've been, you know, being sure to voice this idea that I want to own a, a 
deer farm. So it's like, yeah, I need to have that mindset of what you've got to have to have a deer farm. Like, how do how do you see? You know, it doesn't have to be deer, but people getting into agriculture and land ownership these days. Like, yeah, it is a hard one. I mean, it's you know, there's the equity model, so where mm-hmm. people get them but then you've got the risk of chemistry with the different people and 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 we've seen this a lot when i was in rural banking as so somebody really wanted to own a farm Mm -hmm. and someone really wanted to help someone own a farm but they had terrible chemistry they didn't listen to each other and it would blow up and honestly the amount of equity partnerships that really sadly blow up Mm -hmm. because maybe the people had the same skill set so they were you know, or maybe they just didn't listen or maybe it was just, you know, that it was all out or they, the worst thing people always forgot to have or the, is um, you should always have some sort of disagreement clause or some mm-hmm. sort of, you know, um, and people wouldn't do that because they're like, oh, no, Barry's great. Well, Barry's, of course, Barry's great until shit goes bad. Everyone's great until something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's amazing until the day that, that it goes pear-shaped. So, um, you know, the, the this dispute resolutions were never in there, the exit strategies were never in there. And so, but I, mean, th- I think now going forward with ag, there's lots of opportunities. The equity space is getting better. Um, you know, there's even like, and this is not financial advice, but um, there's even the likes of Rural Lanco if people wanted to invest early and then, you know, that they, they, they um, that's they own farmland that you can invest in through share market. Um, again, that's not financial advice. Um, and so there are ways. I mean, I, I went to the South Island dairy event this year and it was a really powerful statement this young guy made. And he just said, and he was he was from um, South America, he'd come out here, and he said, you have to find your rhino. Mm. And so you know how the, the rhinos have like little birds that feed off them? Yep. And so it's like a symbiotic relationship. You know, you need the bird because it eats the parasites and then mm-hmm. um, you know, and so the rhino's happy with it, and then the little bird needs parasites to eat, so it eats the rhino's parasites. Um, it's food. So uh he was he talked about finding your your rhino. And for him, it had been working alongside a, a, a farming family. They were a big farming family and he'd done a brilliant job and they supported him. You know, they'd started doing equity partnerships with him that built up his wealth that got him into being able to go into farm ownership. And there were actually two or three stories like that. So it's it's never been easy to get into mm-hmm. and buy a farm. It's And this is what worries me is I think sometimes it's it's not getting easier. I'm not 100% sure it's harder. Yep. I don't know. Um, I just... I just don't think it's ever been easy. I think it's, you know, it's sacrifice. There's a yeah. whole lot of sacrifice that goes with it. Yeah, and, and it's sort of on, on the same note what people were saying about housing. Like, yeah, if you read the news and stuff and the articles, oh, it's, you know, or you just subscribe to a real estate agent and they send you the email that should be going to the sellers, not the buyers. Um, you go, gee, where's where the hell do I get 23% growth from? But as you just said, you've just got to keep, improving your position improving your position and, and biding your time and, and getting there and you know we, we just talked about parents and, and the interest rates they had to deal with you know that was hard, hard enough to be able to service those loans you know they might have had the money yep. in, in the proportion of of the of the purchase price but to be able to service it was just a nightmare <laughs> and, and oh, similar things yeah absolutely and and i just think it's about I don't know. It's a hard one because you don't even want people to give up on their dreams, and I never want people to. But it might be, it might just have to be done in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe people lease land. Maybe people. Um, for me, you know, I wanted land because I've got horses, and 
I live in a 50 square meter cottage. My compromise is that I have nothing. I mean, it looked like I was living in an episode of the hoarders when you came here because um, <laughs> everything was pulled out and out of the cupboards and stuff. But it's, you know, it's about what it, what is really important. And I think, you know, it used to amaze me. I learned so much from rural banking, these cool, cool farmers that we'd go and visit. And I tell you what, they would be in rundown as houses, still lovely, but rundown as the original house that have a rundown cow shed, their financial position would be amazing mm-hmm. because they sacrificed. Mm. They sacrificed. And that's what it was about, you know? And then and then you'd go to some of the other guys and they'd have a $2 million house. They'd be strung out because the debt was bad. And, you know, yeah, there was nothing wrong with the original house. Mm. They just wanted a bigger house. You know, they wanted to be. And I think that's when that pride and that. And I'm not saying that people don't deserve those things. This isn't about not deserving it. I just think it's about working out what's important. And, you know, for me, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'd rather have land outside mm-hmm. and have a tiny house inside than be sitting in a giant house, you know, that's. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the lease model there. Um, at the last Next Generation Deer conference I went to, Rabobank spoke, well, they basically went through a lease model and it really sparked the idea of running it as a business. And it's interesting you brought up there, like, assets on the farm what is how does that look in terms of the balance sheet well, it creates a whole yep. bunch of liability but if you're you know running the lease as part of your cost and you know having a good um, balance sheet well then you're making money for the business and you're carrying on as, as a business you know is is there more of that starting that business people well you know farmers are always business people but yeah think of it more yeah. like running as business yeah totally and i think it's always been there i think there's been um you know, no disrespect to them. I'm sure some of them have done a great job and thank God some of them have retired. But <laughs> I think I think farm accountants, you know, had a lot to be responsible for because there was this real arrogance around removing the financial function from the farmer. And maybe the farmer wanted that removed. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's and, and it's not, it's so different now because you've got zero and you've got figured and you've got all these systems that, you know, um, but again, that financial literacy or that understanding that there was always someone to, to report to. There's always, mm-hmm. you know, you hear it a lot now. The reason I went farming is because I don't actually want to have to answer to anyone. It doesn't matter what you do unless you live in the bush completely off the grid and there is someone to answer to. And you know what? If you're living in the bush completely off the grid, you're answering to nature. Mm-hmm. So there's always someone that is a higher power or a higher something that you have to be accountable to and I think that's kind of the thing so financially at times it was hard in banking you know like you would go to people and the accountants took two years to get accounts through you know mm-hmm. it can take two years to find out what so you know in, in 2002 you're finding out how Barry's performance was in 2000 mm. it's you know that was it was and that was just acceptable um and I think that was the that was the thing so yeah there's the the business side of it is different and also accountants were running around telling people borrow more mm. don't pay tax borrow more <laughs> then you can write off the interest and you won't have to pay tax it was just fascinating the things that used to get said and i mean hey you know and i'm not blaming the accountant because you know there's always 50 percent of everyone you know of the two people in the relationship are responsible so you know the farmer still signed the documents and did all that but she's i tell you what sometimes it was um it was just i think again it was that I want to be a farmer and I'm, and this is not critical to anyone. So please don't send me 
abusive emails, <laughs> but um, I already get enough. Yeah, um, one person in the room. <laughs> yeah, there's always one. Um, as you know, I think I think that kind of. I don't know, I guess banks changed and accountants started to change and and, and, and new generations came through, you know, it's um, and you can't just be really good at farming and, and you should never have been, even, even many years ago, the best farmers were those who were good at business and those who were great at the, at, you know, you could be good at both. You didn't, but if you were just a great physical farmer, so you were, you, you know, the actual technical side of it, you were brilliant. You still had it was still difficult financially. There was always that risk. And if you were just a brilliant business person, there was a massive risk because you didn't actually know how to physically farm. So you might be able to do all the great projections you like, but if you can't physically produce what you need to get those projections and you don't know how to change that system, then, then you're in the crap. So it was the person that was kind of good at both rather than brilliant at either that tended to actually move forward. And I think we've got more and more of those sorts of people coming through. Mm. And is that where the likes of, dairy NZ and things with the fast pace of of dairy has meant that people are forecasting and monitoring at a, at a quicker rate and it, whereas you know uh leaving the sheep out sheep out on the on the back and bringing them in just to you know crush them and send them on the truck you know and then it's kind of like depends on the season so two years down the track you balance it all out is that maybe you know I'm, that's an uneducated opinion yeah, but no, or, no. Or vision. i mean that no, no, and I totally get that perspective. I mean, I guess, and I, and I, and this is a, a terrible bunch of generalizations I'm about to make. Um, <laughs> is what I did used to notice, and this was a long time ago, was you know when you're a sheep and beef farming, you you didn't get a twentieth of the month check. No, you got you may have got paid twice a year, so the sense of financial balance was strong. So, you know, they, they, there was that sense of, yep, we've got this half year check, but we might not get the second half of the year check. So I don't know. So I guess I didn't necessarily witness willy nilly um, spendy crazy. It was more quite, you know, they, they, were, they were very, very, very strict with their business side of it and financial management. And again, gross generalization, because maybe, they, you know, I'm sure people can find 10 people that weren't but that, that was my experience at the time and then with dairy it was a little bit different because you get the 20th of the month check and a lot of it's cash flow so you got cash flow so mm. oh, you spend 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 but what you don't realize is what's occurring here and and there was a lot of drawings drawings were quite um quite a bit higher and yeah it was interesting watching the two I think it's balanced out now and I think you know it's it's probably a little bit more balanced but yeah and I'm not criticizing either sector it's just it was just the I guess the nature of it when you're getting a 20th of month check is quite different to when you're actually managing and you're deciding when you sell, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't, you don't, you don't like full of that and then hold it and then wait a couple of weeks or a few months until the price is better. The price is right. <laughs> yeah. You know, you actually, it's got, it gets picked up on that day. And so it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see that, that, that I think there has never been enough respect i think for how sheep and beef farming um the the, the real sacrifices and everyone's had sacrifices but they have had real sacrifices to maintain their farms and and that's where it's a bit gutting to see a lot of them you know some really good farms and i'm sure there's some that aren't good but some really good going into trees as mm. opposed to um you know staying as food producing units yeah so on the food producing and the sort of market side of things how do we really differentiate between say 
the the meat production, um, you know, your alliances, your silver ferns, and, and so on, and your your fondera, and then your sinlate, and then your um, smaller dairy producers. Like, what are they? How are they sort of working as markets, and, and what's dictating things to them? Um, I mean, they often have people in market, so they they're really they're on the ground and. I think, you know, if you look at New Zealand many years ago, we used to love sending, we'd send, old, and it would always be Barry because it was very, really a woman, um, <laughs> old Barry up to China or the US and he'd have a few dinners and he'd come back and he really understood his customer, but he didn't live in the country and he had no freaking idea. And so, but these companies now are brilliant. You know, Fonterra have a huge team up in China or all around the world, actually. Um, you know, Silverfern Farms have put someone up in China now. Uh, I think I think most of the meat companies would have someone up there in, in your key markets. So when you've got people living in the market and they're actually, so they understand the everyday difficulties or the everyday way of living or the fact that in, you know, here's an irony in China, when we first started sending meat up, we were sending big blimmin' blocks of, you know, it would be big packets of meat. Well, many people don't have fridges and they they, they have very small, they don't even really have a kitchen. It would be a um, like a like a hot pot or uh, sorry a hot plate or something. Mm. So you know it was actually understanding how people lived and so having people in market, they actually do. Um, I, I can't speak for the red meat sector, um, but I know the dairy sector are very you know they do they're kind of quite in different markets. Like they're doing similar things, but they are actually they are actually quite unique. And you've got to remember that we are two percent or under two percent of the total global food system of the world. What we produce. Wow. And what's that so, of GDP? Um, oh, it's really weird how they calculate the GDP. So I kind of hate sort of, yeah. So, well, this is the irony, right? So 95% of what we produce, we export. <laughs> so, and it is our biggest export. So it's our, it's our biggest revenue earner, export revenue earner. Um, but the rest of the world is is a like an eight trillion dollar food system and we we earn 48 billion which yeah. is great i'm not saying we only i think we should be proud of what we earn but we've got to be really careful that we realize that we're a small part of a big market and we need to be very agile and we can be because we are small um, but we need to be very aware of what's happening in those markets from the market's perspective not from our own it's very easy to say oh i'd never I'd never eat the cellular meat or I'd never eat a plant-based burger. And don't get me wrong, I say those things all the time, um, but I would probably would eat cellular meat, to be fair. Um, it's it's easy to say that because you wouldn't want to do it. But we're one of billions and people live very differently around the world with different cultures and different ways of living. And so it's we can't transfer our thinking or our desires and just extrapolate it into billions because it's not how it works. And I think that's where New Zealand sometimes gets a bit tripped up in all our sectors, not just not just food, but in particular because it's such a big sector, food. Yeah, like I think of deer and I think of the, the crew that are in Belgium and Germany with Savina and then the crew that are in the USA with burgers and, and other and pet food, ironically enough. Yeah. And then Hunter McGregor by himself there in Shanghai in a small part of Shanghai talking about actually they don't, you know, quick sear and, and rest meat they slow cook and he's he shared a beautiful uh spare spare ribs venison spare ribs recipe with me that you just don't think of in terms of venison and not only has he like changed the way that they need to approach a market from the market but also for us you know hunters and venison lovers out there a different way of you, you maximizing a carcass and, and 
getting more value out of this this meat that we love. Yeah, so it's really cool to see the variation of of markets yeah. and what markets demand. You know, game, burger, and these uh, slow cooked meats from from venison. It's awesome. Oh, and Hunter's amazing. Like he's just brilliant. You know, he he. You know, we're fortunate we catch up with him when we can, um, and just the insight that he has is just so fantastic and the passion he has, you know, it's really hard. And, you know, I think again, everyone's like, well, everyone will like venison because it's a, it is, it's a premium meat, you know, it's a luxury meat. Um, but they don't, if you don't grow up with something, I mean, I didn't grow up with tofu. I'm not hanging out to eat tofu, you know, like if you didn't grow up with something, I mean, there's people who don't like lamb who didn't grow up with lamb, you know, people in the U S often don't like, you know, because if you didn't grow up eating it, 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 it's funny. I didn't grow up eating venison. I'm funny about venison. I will eat it. And I do enjoy it, but I, I don't tend to cook it because I don't want to hurt it. You know, I'm always <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to, this is going to end up being like, you know, a shoe shoe sole or something if I keep cooking it like this. So, um, yeah, so somewhat having people like Hunter who are actually, and he works with chefs. That's a mm. cool thing with him is he sits with a chef and the chef is, this is what they do here. You know, and you, I don't know if you follow his pictures, but, yeah. you know, it's often very tiny you know, we're not talking about a big old steak here. It's very small. It's very unique recipes. Um, and I did actually, I think he put a photo up of those ribs. They look delicious. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. So as you, as you said, you don't want to hurt hurt the venison um, and you're involved with uh, Meet the Need. Um, how good was it having venison mints? You, you know, you can't stuff that up. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, that's the thing is, is I think things that are that are a bit fatty or whatever, or but um, and venison mince is just great, right? So it's just really. I mean, I can, I, I'm quite a bad cook, so you'd be surprised what I can stuff up as far as food goes. But <laughs> it's, um, yeah. I mean, having any having any of those those sort of meats would meet the need is just incredible, and and it's, um, yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, meet the need is a charity that farmers donate meat or or milk. We've got mm. milk as well. Um, and then it goes into food banks. So it's, um, but not that cow. So I don't want people kind of imagining that, you know, Jenny the pet cow or something ends up. It's uh, it's literally, we're very fortunate that it's export quality, beautiful meat that goes through. And then a couple of years ago, I think it was the Fiordland, the big cow. Yeah. And and that was, it was something like 20, ton, it was massive. And again, and look, we can all be like, oh, the beautiful, and look, I, I hate animals dying, but I eat meat. So, and I love animals more than anything. You know, I have a pet steer that's, I found out today, looks apparently he's one, about one and a half ton. Well, I thought he's only a ton, but apparently he's looking at, and he's a pet and I won't eat him, but I will cook a steak for dinner. You know, like I won't cook him up as a steak, but I will have a steak. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think I think the story with uh, Field and Wapiti Foundation is that as part of the deal, Field and Wapiti Foundation cull um, a large number of red deer in particular to keep the bloodlines pure, but also a number of um, cows and older bulls that aren't in good, you know, trophy condition. Yeah. And, and yeah, it is, and that's a thing that people forget, right? Like, I mean, animals don't, you know, it's not like the movies or the cartoons. They don't. Yeah. You know they can they can suffer and and so this is is absolutely there and it's also for um keeping you know ensuring the numbers don't get out of control which damages the natural you know there's a whole lot of native trees and native plants and which yeah, will this be is, this is fiordland national park here that we're talking yeah, about yeah. And, and it's a, it's yeah, a major, yeah. major conservation effort and so usually the export you know it's uh professional um chopper hunters that um cull in a way that's suitable for export but when the export money is not there, they can't pay for the choppers, but they still need to do the work. 
and so that was a, a great way to use the resource, which, which was pretty cool. Oh, we were so grateful. We were so grateful, and, we, and we, we we would like to do something. You know, we will look to do something like that again. And it was all done safely, so it was processed yeah. properly. It was a sure quality with the edit check that, you know, it's, I mean, this was, I mean, you it doesn't get any more organic than mm. getting a deer out of Fieldland, by the way. Yeah, I think Seek Foundation is doing, doing a similar thing with uh, Landcare Trust down there in the yeah. Kaimanawas, so... You know, it's um, it's cool to see from both ends of the spectrum what's going on there. So, how did how did you get involved with meet meet the need? Oh, again, I was just really lucky. So, I I, I sort of knew Wayne Langford, and it was him and Siobhan O'Malley who came up with the idea, and um, long before me, um, well, I didn't come up with the idea; they did. But it was, and Wayne just rang me one day about a year before we kicked off last year and said, "Hey, this is my idea. Do you reckon it would work?" And and I was like. Um, it is brilliant, yes, because mm. he had the supply chain. He had the. It wasn't just an idea. He didn't have like this. Oh, I'm going to do this. He had literally gone to food banks. What do you need? Where are the greatest needs? What sort of food would be required? How, okay, cool. So they were like mints. So we need mints. Okay, cool. So he understood the end user. Then he went backwards and went. Well, how would we get? How would we distribute it? How would we get the um, processing paid for how would all these things so so that I was you know it was just such an intelligent thing I mean I grew up on food banks you know mum and dad used food banks a lot when I was a kid well right the way through really um, I remember mum just being devastated you know like it's you know that whole again that financial thing when you have to drive up to a food bank that that to my mother I just still remember her crying I thought it was cool because you get a packet of biscuits and you don't get to buy those normally in the thing but you know, for mum, it was devastating. And so for me, if we can help families, a couple of things, not just the food, but getting nutrition. This is mm. good nutrition into people, you know, not just not just fillers, not just calories. Calories isn't calories isn't nutrition. Calories is calories. Mm, yeah. Um, and so how does the Farmgate, uh, you know, label this as a donation? I have no idea. No. Um, <laughs> so I guess it's kind of through because it, go, it goes through Silver Fern Farms who have got, we've got a really generous commercial relationship with them and they've been amazing. Um, and so it, it will go through, but it, go, it goes through as any other donation. So it would go through like a cash donation. Mm-hmm. So, so it is. Same for milk. That, who's that coming through? Um, so um, currently Meadaka. So that, that's going into central North Island. And so it's going in as UHT. Yeah. And there is another exciting thing coming through, but I can't talk about it. But hopefully, it so, in the next couple of months, it's um, coming through. So that will be more opportunities to get milk into even wider, um, more food banks outside just the central North Island. Awesome! So make sure you're following Meet the Need um, there on Instagram. I follow them. They're cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And look, Wayne's amazing. Good human. Just uh, you know, him and Siobhan, man, the work and effort they put into making. You're really lucky when you get asked to be on a board when people already have the nuts and bolts sorted out for you you know that's just that's just awesome <laughs> yeah absolutely so um julia where do people follow you professionally and and then sort of personally because you're great banter you see you see your um small large in between horses all over twitter <laughs> oh yeah yeah my miniature pony land shark i'm actually writing a kid's book about him at the moment oh fantastic so. <laughs> yes so what, what what do they look for oh Oh, so um, I think my Twitter is Julia Jones one one zero. Yep. Um, and find me on LinkedIn, or as I like to think of it, as Old People Facebook. So I'm on Old People Facebook, LinkedIn, 
all the time. You won't find me a lot on Facebook because I'm just not there and I haven't quite discovered the gram yet. So it's, um, and you can just, if you Google me, you'll find my contact details. So anyone's welcome to contact me anytime. I just, I love talking to randoms. I love just people out of the blue getting in contact, but, and it's just Julia Jones on LinkedIn. There's nothing, nothing too hard to find there. No, no dancing. Sorry about my common name. Yeah, no dancing on TikTok just yet, Julia. No, not yet. Oh no, I think I did via my knee, my great niece. I think it was. Um, yeah, so I have, but that's the only way. I mean, I, I think I can dance, but I can't. <laughs> it's all in it. here. It's all inside. Yeah, it's it's your uh, rainbow rainbow view of things. Yeah, know. yeah. It doesn't <laughs> stop me from dancing. I actually went to Las Vegas for my thirtieth, and I remember saying to my sister, and honestly, it was only a few years ago we were talking about it, and I was like. Remember when those lovely people gave me their cat because we're at a private bar, you know, mm-hmm. like one of the ghost bar or something, and you have to buy. It. And I was like, they, remember when they gave us that cool couch? That was so nice. And she was like, you were really annoying them, dancing around them, and they left and swore <laughs> at you. And I was like, oh, because my memory of it was quite different. <laughs> no, I, I was think, like, oh, I think the roast does does you know does good things sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the old rainbows are out there. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Julia, I like, I like to um, get people to leave me with what keeps them in flow. So when you sort of live by this, so it can be a mantra or an idea that you live your life by, things go well, and when things are going well, you kind of see that showing up in your life. Do you have anything like that that get, keeps you on the right path or, or you, you look to to stay on the right path? Oh, I just try and tell the truth. Like, I, th- I do work really hard to try and be... I like I genuinely never want to upset someone but I will will be quite direct and quite real about things but I always think too that that is still my perspective and my view and so that's probably keeps me but yeah the days I mean look I look out the door and I've got my beautiful horses and I'm just I think it's just a great deal of gratitude look I'm a kid that grew up in a household that had financial difficulty its whole life you know mum and dad ended up in a housing court house, I don't have, you know, I've done some cool education post as an adult, but I didn't have the best education as a young kid. Um, probably not the smartest person. And what I have, I'm so lucky to have, you know, like this is, and yeah, I've worked for it, but you know, sometimes in life, it is a bit of the roll of the dice. You know, I've had beautiful people around me that have supported me. I've had, I've been in amazing jobs where I've just learned things. I've, I've seen, hardship and I've learned from it and rolled from it and that's just yeah so I think it's that gratitude I think it's that just I know both sides and I know what it's like to have absolutely nothing and feel down and out and destitute and um and I know the impact that that has on families and I know you know mum mum would have had depression and you know she's it was pretty tough um and I just I think I just look at that and I just to honor her I make an effort to be happy and look at the positives. It's not it's not natural all the time, but it's we've got a choice, man. You know, like there's always going to be some shit that goes down. You got two choices. You can either sit and wall. And I do have my wallow moments. I just don't <laughs> let myself wallow for a long period of time. You know, I, I you know I will allocate a wallowing time, and then I get myself out of it and go like just you know just be grateful for the things that you have. You know. Yeah. No, it's like uh, when two planes knock down the World Trade Center, you got to assess sit down take it all in and then get on to it <laughs> and you think of that day some people missed their flight and some people got bumped onto the flight you know it's you just don't know 
Like it's just about you've got to make the most of stuff and there will always be a problem to find. You have to just, you know, why waste the energy finding the problem? Go find a solution, you know, go change something, go do something for someone else, go think about others. No, so that was a terrible answer to a very. I no, it was, it was it was multifaceted. Just... It was fantastic, Julia. Thank you so much for for a second time giving up your your, your <laughs> time. <laughs> it's, it's bloody cool to uh, to get this recorded and and share your thoughts and and hopefully connect a few more people with um, a great mind out there in the New Zealand uh, business agricultural um, and just uh, good vibes world that is that can be the internet. So thank you so much, Julia. Oh, thanks for having me.